Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the long history of cultural wars in schools. All right, let's start the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. This week, in the halls of Congress, a decorated military general got into it with a U.S. House member over critical race theory. But I do think it's important, actually. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? That was General Mark Milley. He's one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he was saying, yeah, it is okay to talk about race and race theory and even critical race theory in a military education. As he said this, Republican Representative Matt Gates shook his head no over and over again. This debate, it is everywhere now. So far, five states have passed laws limiting how racism can be taught in public education. And more than a dozen have introduced bills that would do the same thing. Critical race theory is culturally responsive framework, culturally responsive teaching, it's all just Trojan horses. Who pays your salary? Shame on you. And now I should stop here and define critical race theory. Basically, it is the idea that racism can be structural and systemic and that it can be built into laws and policies and be an outcome of certain laws and policies, even if those laws and policies don't directly address race. Law professors first came up with this phrase in the 1970s and 80s, But it's having this new life right now. Why? Well, it seems like this current fight can be traced to one man and one Fox News appearance. On September 1st, Christopher Rufo, this conservative journalist and filmmaker, he appeared on Fox News on Tucker Carlson Tonight. He was there to talk about a thing he had been writing about, his anger over the way anti-racism seminars were being taught in Seattle. And in that appearance on Fox News... He said the words. It's absolutely astonishing how critical race theory has pervaded critical race theory, not political correctness, not multiculturalism, a relatively new kind of phrase for some not new ideas. And I'd like to make it explicit. Uh, The president of the White House, it's within their authority and power to immediately issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory trainings from the federal government. And I call on the president uh, to immediately issue this executive order and and stamp out this destructive, divisive, pseudoscientific ideology at its root. After that, Rufo got an invitation to the Trump White House. And then a few weeks later, on September 23rd, 2020, the White House issued an executive order. President Trump says the executive order is meant to stop efforts to promote, quote, divisive and harmful sex and race-based ideologies. Trump tweeted that Americans should be taught to take pride in their country. But as new as this fight may feel, my first guest this episode, he says it really isn't. Adam Lotz is a professor of education and history at Binghamton University. He studies this stuff for a living. You know, so much of this debate on the surface level feels new. Oh, critical race theory, new kind of phrase. But in a piece that you helped write for Slate, you argue that this debate and this kind of debate, it goes way back. Uh, In fact, you say it harkens back to a fight over textbooks from the 1930s. Can you tell folks who might not know, most probably don't know, what was that fight in the 30s? 
Uh, there was a set of uh, very popular textbooks. Uh, they sold in the millions. Uh, they were written by a team of researchers at Columbia University Teachers College, led by Harold Rugg. And they were part of a group that named itself the Frontier Thinkers. And they really did want to use schools to sort of encourage uh, America to be, you know, the United States to be more conscious of class inequality, of racial inequality. But it got latched onto not unlike Christopher Rufo, there were a couple of activists, one most closely associated with the American Legion, who latched on to this set of textbooks, which had been used in schools across the country for years, middle schools and high schools. So they had already been used. They were very popular. They were the leading textbook. There was school boards had looked at them. They, you know, inspected them. They said, OK, great. These look like great textbooks. There was nothing objectionable about them. But one pundit. Uh, associated with the American Legion, he uh, fixed on them as being sneakily subversive. Uh, because, what was the most offensive line that he found in them to to to, to poke at? Yeah, uh, well, uh, the idea that America had in the past and today uh, class and racial divisions. Oh, scary. Well, so if you're the American Legion and America is headed down the pike toward a, a European war and a Pacific war, their fear at the time was that kids reading that America had problems, they argued, among other things, that it would make it so that soldiers wouldn't fight. Uh, they wouldn't fight for America if it had problems. The kids weren't soldiers. Well, no, the but, soldiers you know, were already out of school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and let me give you just from so my current hometown of Binghamton. In a school board meeting, public record, they were discussing burning the books. That's the solution. Take them out. Now, this, meanwhile, really? is during World War II, the most famous connection then and now of book burners was Nazi Germany. And there mm. were Americans in New Jersey and Wisconsin and New York who thought that the solution was to burn these books because of this content that they didn't really contain. But, but they did contain a challenge to the notion that America had no problems. Really? And so that's a fight that happened in the 30s and 40s during that time period. But you also write in this late piece that there was another big fight over textbooks uh, in the 50s and then also in 1974. And this one read as really bonkers to me. It's it's called The Great Textbook War of 1974 in Kanawha County, West Virginia. According to some reports... School buildings were hit by dynamite. There were Molotov cocktails. Buses were shot at. Journalists were beaten. At a certain point, coal mines in the county and around town were shut down by protesting miners. What happened? What What is this great textbook war? And what were they fighting over then in 1974? Yeah, it's, it's again, so similar in some ways. Um, the state had approved a set of textbooks. There was a school board member, Alice Moore, who um, had recently moved to town for family reasons and, and ran for school board and won. And she had been a conservative activist. And so she looked at the books and she th thought she saw these themes that you're going to think are from you know, 2021, um, teaching white children that they should feel guilty, teaching all children that, you know, relaxed attitudes towards, you know, sex were okay, that America might have problems. Uh, and the sticking point, or one of the biggest sticking points was that, the, and these were literature books, was that they included excerpts from books such as Eldritch Cleaver's Soul on Fire, Soul on Ice, excuse me, 
mm-hmm. and George George Jackson's book, who was another uh, black militant writer. And the the notion that white children would be reading these particular uh, these kind of black folks, <laughs> right? I would propose a solution to uh, to the problem um, would be to remove these books for the remainder of the school year and to go back to the old textbooks that we used last year and allow time for a review and for an establishment of guidelines in which to judge these books. This is what's so uh, similar to the talk today. The conservatives in Kanawha County said, look at I am not, the white conservatives said, I'm not a racist. You know, and they literally said, a lot of my friends are black. But you're going to turn kids into ra- white kids, you're going to turn them into racists if you have them read Eldridge Cleaver and tell them that that's the representative of black America and make them feel guilty for being white and make them feel like the only black voices uh, are ones that are angry about, hmm. you know, American society. Oh, so again, so very concerned. similar to Thanks the, to the thing. <laughs> mm. So, you know, I want to ask you the ways in which this current debate over critical race theory and schooling and education feels different from past fights over curriculum and race. Are there any? Is there a big one? One thing I notice seeing this current flare up is that it feels really national. You've got the U.S. Congress debating this thing. You've got Donald Trump before he left office talking about this. It feels as if the debate is happening nationally and locally at the same time. And that feels like it's different for me. But I don't know. Is it? You study this stuff. Uh, well, the, 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 that part of the pattern is pretty typical. Like the, if we go back to the rug textbooks in the late 1930s, okay. early 1940s, there's this spark and then journalists get involved. In that case, it was Bertie Forbes who started Forbes magazine. And he was, a, you know, he was on the school board in Englewood, New Jersey, as well as Rug magazine. Oh, yeah. Wow. And he, he started reporting that, you know, these rug textbooks, he talked to kids in the middle school and they told him that their teacher told them they weren't allowed to love America and he puts it on his magazine and he generates national interest. And Badouj, all of a sudden, it's a national question. Uh, with the Kanawha County case, uh, yes, it's one county in West Virginia, but you know the fledgling Heritage Foundation it gets its start. They send lawyers to help. Really? Oh, yeah. Huh. And uh, maybe most of all, the first of Reagan's uh, education secretaries, or the person who would go on to be the first secretary, also jumps on board supporting the anti-book protesters. And this is part of why he gets known as a conservative national leader. So the the instant nationalness of it is part of the pattern. Uh, huh. one, thing that okay. strikes, one thing that strikes me as new language-wise, though, I don't know if you're watching any of the videos that are coming out of school board meetings now, um, but some of the language has adopted a more aggressive we're the anti-racists line. Hmm. Um, and Give that me an is, example. Like well, a well, certain school board meeting, they're saying that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in Virginia, is it Loudoun? I don't know how, don't know how that's pronounced. Loudoun County, Virginia had a tumultuous meeting recently. Disgusted by your bigotry and your depravity. And the, the protesters are holding signs saying, you know, no critical race theory. Don't make my kid a racist, uh, my white kid. So we're not the racist, you're the racist. Hey, right. Okay. Why, you know, I'm thinking about the kind of stuff that parents would be squeamish about when I was a kid in public school in South Texas. 
And there's all kinds of issues that make the parents squirm, you know, gay stuff, sex ed, whether or not we're teaching evolution. But it feels like it always comes down to race. And that's the one that gets folks the most worked up. Why always race of all the issues that could be hot button for children's education? Uh, well, I think the, the 20th century pattern uh, was clear, and I think it's continuing today. The, the hardest part for the history culture wars, you know, teaching history, is the pronouns, not in the you know, gender identity sense, but in the sense of if history in school is supposed to teach kids who we are, this sense of we and they is intensely angry and it has been evolving through time and each step of the evolution has made somebody very angry you know so the most mm. obvious example is you know post brown v board the push to desegregate to turn the public schools that were legally segregated in the southeast from you know from our schools meaning our white schools to our schools meaning our people citizens of america schools you know, was another we haven't mentioned yet, but uh, is, I think, probably the most uh, divisive version of this sort of school controversy. And I think it comes mm. down to who we are and who the perceived they are in American history. Yeah. Well, it's also hearing you talk about who is the we. American public education was started with a very intentional we in mind, white kids and not the other ones. The other ones had separate schools, right? <laughs> if right. they were even subsidized by the government. And so it seems as if a lot of this is just like public education, period, still grappling with like what actual integration means. Yep. Uh, it, I think the, the, the thing that terrifies, you know, you see the, the heat and the passion coming out of these um, anti-CRT protesters. And it's not actually about the real critical race theory from Derek Bell and Gloria Ladson Billings, other scholars. It's about this notion that they are no longer able to control their sense of who we are as a country and that their kids mm. are being told that uh, we white Americans uh, should not think of ourselves as the sole protagonist in the story of American history. Hmm. Hmm. I can tell you're on one side of this issue, <laughs> so, yeah, but sorry. I'm wondering, is there anything that you've heard or seen in this debate from the other side, from the folks saying, well, you shouldn't be teaching this stuff? Is there anything they've said or any sentiment they've expressed that resonates with you that made you say, oh, yeah, I, I could see that? Well, uh, sure. I think, you know, schools really should reflect uh, community values. They should be. Um, institutions that embody all members of a community uh, and not just, you know, grudgingly, but, but fully and, and lovingly and, and wholeheartedly. Um, so when I hear, see these protesters who are saying things that aren't, aren't true, but they think that schools are sort of emotionally bullying white children, well, yeah, I, I agree. Schools should not be emotionally bullying any children, including white children. I, I was a history teacher for many years in high school and middle school, and I did not hammer, you know, my particular beliefs any more than Harold Rugg did in the 1930s, you know, any more than the Kanawha County textbooks did in the 1970s. 
any more than you know CRT theorists did in the 1970s to today. Uh, that's not the job of a history teacher. And I think parents who think that their kids are being, you know, I don't know, take your pick, like instructed that they must vote a certain way, you know, only for Bernie or whatever. Sure, they should be mad about that. It's just not happening. Thanks again to Adam Lotz. He is a professor of education and history at Binghamton University. He co-wrote an article about all of this, critical race theory and how it's tied to history with Gillian Frank. That's over at Slate.com. All right, coming up, the creators of the HBO Max series Hacks, one of my very favorite shows of this year so far. This message comes from NPR sponsor Best Fiends. With today's always-on culture, your brain could probably use a break. When you feel the need for a mental pick-me-up, play Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Solve thousands of refreshingly challenging puzzles and meet tons of cute collectible characters. With daily events and fresh updates released all the time, there's always something new to explore. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This message comes from NPR sponsor Verbo. The family reunion will be extra special this summer, so check out Verbo to find a private whole vacation home with something for everyone. A private pool, outdoor space, a grill, whatever the family is looking for, you'll find it on Verbo. And if plans change, you can cancel for free on select properties. Download the Verbo app. The time for getting back together is now. Capitalism touches every part of our lives. Capitalism is a giant force that I don't understand. I feel that it's a very safe system. I am constantly in fear of losing my job. It is our biggest success and our biggest failure. On this special series from Throughline, Capitalism. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. Let's talk TV. We are about halfway through 2021, and so far, I've watched a bunch of TV this year. And I gotta say, one of my favorite shows of 2021 is this HBO comedy called Hacks. It just wrapped its first season, and I tore through this show. And then I made all of my friends and coworkers watch it as well, including the entire team that makes It's Been a Minute. Hacks is all about this intergenerational mentorship of sorts between a young comedy writer named Ava and an elder stateswoman of comedy. The queen of Sin City herself, Miss. Y'all. Played by the iconic Gene Smart. This is a show about two women, both prickly and both caustically funny. Hacks has just been picked up for a second season, and I got the chance this week to talk with not one, not two, but all three creators and writers of this show. Paul Downs, Lucia and Yellow, and Jen Statsky. They told me all about how this series came to be. Tell me the origin story of Hacks. Yeah. We uh, we were, Paul and Jen and I were on our way to Portland, Maine from Boston, Massachusetts. We were in Jen's dad's Honda Pilot and we were on our way to shoot a section of Paul's The Characters Netflix special. Um, and on that car ride, we kind of started talking about so many female comedians that we loved and that kind of, for one reason or another, never really had the accolades or careers of a lot of their male counterparts and kind of were just talking about why that was. And um, that is kind of the genesis of the idea of Deborah Vance. And then the idea of the Ava character kind of came from the idea of a younger person experiencing this older woman and her hard work ethic and 
and really getting an appreciation for her. And so that road trip in a Honda Pilot birthed this two-hander story. So the star of this show is Jean Smart as Deborah Vance, the aging comedian. It is a performance that's drawing so much praise. And I think I love her most for all the one-liners. I mean, from the start, when she's making the, like, Liberace poppers joke. What is this, 50 tassels on one couch? Even Liberace would think it's a bit much. Oh, no, you're incorrect. He actually loved it. He did poppers on that couch in 85. It's just, like, (laughs) rapid (laughs) And it's these small digs that come out of nowhere. I'm wondering, what's y'all's favorite Deborah Vance one-liner from Hacks? Uh, You know, I'm very fond of an episode two when they are uh, driving through the desert. And it's kind of the first time that Deborah makes fun of um, Ava's. She notices the size of Ava's hands. Oh, do you have like huge hands? Um, I think they're normal size. No, no, they look like catcher's mitts. Ava says, you know, some people think it's pretty cheap to make fun of people's appearances. And Deborah very succinctly replies, yeah. Yeah. Ugly people. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a favorite of mine, I'd have to say. Love it, love it. Are there others? Um, I am always fond of episode 105 when a slightly tipsy Deborah Vance runs into a slightly coked up Ava Daniels in the back hallway. Oh, what's going on here? Premarital sex. Deborah. <laughs> oh, just FYI. I heard that she has deeper sexual experiences with the women. Oh my God. Okay, you're my witness. She's my boss. She can be arrested for saying that, right? Oh, please. Roman Polanski's still feasting on foie gras on the 6th. I don't think I'm going to get busted for saying my bisexual employee has bisex. (laughs) (laughs) That was very good. You know, some of the plot for Gene Smart's older comedian character harkens back to real women in comedy. Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller, Lily Tomlin. Was there one comedian that her character was most influenced by? You know, no. It was very much an amalgamation. I mean, she started her career as um, a stage comedian with her husband in a sort of duo act akin to Nichols and May. Um, And then she had a sitcom and a very public divorce, not unlike Lucille Ball, Um, And, of course, there's some Joan Rivers and there's some Phyllis Diller and there's all the comedians that influenced Gene, like Elaine Boozler. And really, the other thing that this character, Deborah Vance, really is, is an amalgamation of countless women who you don't know as a household name. Mm. um, Because for one reason or another, they were discouraged or never, you know, continued their pursuit of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So... Y'all, all three worked on Broad City, and that was a show very much about women of a certain age. I think we would now call them geriatric millennials. Uh, yes, yes, they are geriatric millennials, yeah. I guess, yes. And this show, Hacks, it's about a culture clash of women from two very different generations, a boomer and a zoomer. Hilarity ensues. Uh, that seems harder. How did you get that right? Well, I mean, obviously, we're not boomers. And the the challenge of being able to write authentically from that point of view, um, you know, is something that's very important to us. Uh, I think that we really wanted to portray each character not as a stereotype of their generation, but just as unique characters. Um, and, of course, they would have their perspectives because of when they grew up of, you know, like, Deborah says, you know, I had to wear a dress and heels when I was your age. Well, when I was doing stand-up at your age, I had to wear a dress and heels. 
Okay, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have to. Are you, are you like mad at me about that? Yes. We did want to always have the point of view be authentic and real just to these women and who they were. Who they are. They're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Last question before we play our game. This show, it's about how the world of comedy is just not really nice to women of all ages. But it's also this commentary on cancel culture. One of the leads starts the show by being kind of canceled. But I cannot tell after watching this season of the show whether y'all think or y'all want the show to make me think that cancel culture is real and bad or totally made up and not at all a thing at all. Like, the three creators of Hacks, what is y'all's theory on cancellation as it pertains to comedy? Well, I think you're make a very valid and astute point, which is that we didn't necessarily want to say anything about what cancel culture in 2021 is or whether we feel this way about it or that way about it. And that was by design. It's really about two characters and two women who are kind of cast aside. And if, if you were to say cast aside is a synonym for cancel culture, I suppose you could, but really we're trying to lean into just the idea of cast aside because that for us is something that has happened to women in the arts forever and just women in general. There's always a million different ways to cast women aside, whether it's you call them crazy or they're, they're difficult to work with. Yeah. Or you yeah. burn them at the stake because we yeah. think they're a witch. You know, yeah. I think it's, been, <laughs> it's something that's gone on for eons. Mm-hmm. I know that when someone sees it in the pilot, I think that is something that people want to investigate or consider. But I think also that sets it very firmly in one specific time. And we hope that this show is something that people can watch again and again and feels relevant and, quite frankly, important beyond 2021. I like that. That is a perfect toss to a break, which we're going to take right now, and then we'll come back and play a game. It's called Who Said That? The following message comes from NPR sponsor WeWork. With WeWork All Access, you can finally leave behind all the inconveniences and distractions of working from home. At the swipe of a card, you can unlock hundreds of nationwide workspaces actually designed for work. And with a month-to-month membership, you can get workspace when you need it, no matter where business takes you. That's smart flexibility. Sign up today to get a free trial for new members at WeWork.com NPR. Terms apply. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, joined for this segment by the three creators of the very, very good HBO Max show, Hacks. Tell folks who you are. I'm Lucia Aniello. I'm Jen Statsky. I'm Paul W. Downs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get to the game, what is Gene Smart like on set? An absolute prankster. I tell you what, always doing pranks. On-set pranks are her number one thing. No. Giving Clooney a run for his money with those pranks. Oh, my God. (laughs) Worst prank, best prank. Well, I will say she's she's absolutely not a prankster, but oh. she did after the after in um, the beginning of episode seven, where spoiler alert, Ava, the young writer, has a sex dream about Deborah. Um, after shooting that scene, Deborah did walk around set with a prop cigarette, like a Lothario after a conquest. <laughs> the next day, when she and Hannah got to set, she said to Hannah, "Huh, no flowers." Wow. So she is just like she's constantly making jokes. She's absolutely liquid funny. She's honestly like perfect for the role because. While she is a trained actor and comes from theater and has been working prolifically for 35 years, she also is just, she's, she, she's built like a comedian. She's just so quick and so funny. I'm into it. I'm into it. So um, we're going to play a game. It is called Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? 
the premise is quite simple. I share a quote from the week of news. Y'all got to guess who it is. And then the winner gets nothing but, like, bragging rights. But I got to say, I've never played this game with three contestants. So it might be a cluster. Okay. There's no buzzer. There's no referee. I'm bad at keeping score. But, like, it doesn't matter. It's just a game. All right. With that, let's just get to it. I'm going to say this quote. As soon as you think you know who it is, yell something out. Here it is. I don't feel like I owe them anything at this point. They need to be reminded they actually work for me. Britney Spears. Well played. Uh, There have been back and forths in court for years over this, but she's finally in court. She was in L.A. this week speaking out loud And uh, she basically was fighting the fact that her father, Jamie Spears, still gets to control her career. And she made some pretty harrowing allegations. She said at one point that they force her to wear an IUD. Yeah. It's really exciting that people are waking up to it. And I hope that Brittany, you know, feels supported. And I hope that she is freed of her conservatorship because it does seem really, really unfair. And conservatorships in general feel like it needs a massive overhaul. And I really hope that... We can look to Washington to immediately end this. It feels like something that like should be, it seems like such an archaic way of controlling people. It's horrible. Yeah. Hashtag free Britney, but also sorry to make the first quote of this game an incredible downer. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) It's reality. It's life, you know? It's life. It's life. Next quote. Uh, This is from a famous actress. I'm a much better villain than Meryl. And I'm sure she'd say so. Meryl was not going to be good in Basic Instinct or in Casino. Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone. Who got that one? Jen. Uh, I think I did, but Lucia was right there on my tail. I think we got to split that point. Split the point. So in May of this year, she gave an interview to Zoomer and talking about who gets to be perceived as a prestige actress. But it got picked up again this week and was trending online. Uh, And basically in this interview, she was asked about finally getting to work with Meryl Streep. They were in this movie Mm. in 2019 called The Laundromat. And Sharon Stone stops the interview and says, I don't like the way you phrase that. Like, I got to work with Meryl Streep finally. You didn't say Meryl Streep finally got to work with Sharon Stone. And then she goes on Mm. and on and on to be like, this industry picks a darling like Meryl. She gets all the attention. And then all the other women who are just as good... They matter less. And at first I was like, you leave Meryl alone. But then I was like, maybe she's right. You know, it's so interesting. I almost did. Do you choose your quotes based on your your interview subject? Because it feels like these are weirdly tenuously related to hacks. Oh, (laughs) someone's perceptive. Deborah Vance (laughs) would say the exact same thing. Right. Deborah Vance would be like, there are darlings, a lot of the male, but there are darlings and there are there are those who are considered hacks on the distinction is really ephemeral and uneasy. It's not easy to uh, to pinpoint. I love it. I love it. All right, last quote. This one, um, I, I don't think y'all are going to get it. I'm sorry. Here's the quote. <laughs> <laughs> Ass first, personality second. Hmm. Oh. Ass first. Can you give us one clue? Yeah. It was from a really weird trailer that came out this week for an upcoming Netflix show. Oh... Oh, there was a there was a reality. Is it the reality show where people like are dressed up as characters and they do what on that show in the costumes? Oh. I think they date. Oh, yes. Is it Sexy Beast? That's it. That is it. Have y'all all seen this trailer? Yes. Okay. How would you describe the trailer for your colleagues who haven't seen it yet? 
So it is testing the idea of is love blind by having people go on dates, but they are wearing like intense, intense, like special effects, like monster gargoyle sci-fi makeup. Welcome to the strangest blind date ever. Hey, how you doing? Damn, how you doing? doing? (laughs) Could you fall in love with someone based on personality alone? But they all, so this is the thing, it's like, the premise is like we're going to prove that like love is blind and it's not about looks. But you can tell that all of these people with the panda costumes on and stuff, they're all like skinny and thin and tall and hot <laughs> beneath the mask. It it feels yeah. it feels like the first show that's like like a troll. Like like everyone reacted online <laughs> and were like, "Oh, this is crazy." But like they know it's crazy. They know it's insane. Like they they know what they're doing. You know, like yeah. I don't know. What uh, animal or persona would y'all take on if you had to appear on a show like Sexy Beast? Manatee. Really? I would be a manatee. Why? Why? Tell me why. I think in a manatee suit, I'd have to be like wheeled in and out. I think I could just like roll around. Honestly, I think it would be like kind of relaxing and leisurely, you know? And that way, my 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 figure wouldn't precede me. I think that'd be really perfect. Okay. Manatee. Okay. Also, also, they're, you know, endangered, so I want to give some, you know, I'm trying to help the, the community. <laughs> yeah. Visibility, you know, representation is important. Manatee visibility, yeah. <laughs> um, I would probably, so I'm, I'm a Capricorn, and I'm a very by-the-book kind of Capricorn. I'm very textbook definition. So for that reason, I would say a goat. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a dog lover, so I'm going to stick with what I love and say I would come out as a dog. What kind of dog? Oh, a uh, pit bull. Nice. Adopt, don't shop. I like Thank that. you, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> I would be a hummingbird. Oh. oh. No one ever has anything bad to say about a hummingbird ever. Everyone's just like, oh, cute. We've been having a hummingbird visit us recently, and we've really enjoyed it. See? Everyone loves seeing a hummingbird. Yeah. Oh, they're beautiful. They're so cool. There you have That's, it. You'd win the game. Or I guess, what is win the game? You'd, 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 find, you'd find a partner. You'd find true love. <laughs> true love. You'd find true love. Netflix, yeah. call me who won this game because I have no idea. I think it's Jen and Lucia. I think let's give Jen and Lucia the, the crown. Wow. Okay. Thank you. I don't, need, I, don't need, I don't need to win this game. The women come out on top. The man loses. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Hey, thank y'all again for playing this game with me and for making a show that I've thoroughly enjoyed this year, Hacks on HBO Max. Uh, I appreciate your time, and uh, I can't wait for season two. Oh, thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Thank you so much, Sam. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Rachel of Denver, Colorado, and I just finished my very first week as an electrician apprentice, and it's so different than anything that I've done before, but I absolutely love it. Hey, Sam. This is Christine from Dallas, Texas. The best part of my week is seconds away when my sister arrives with my mom, my niece, and my baby nephew, who I've never met. They're here. They're here. Hi, Sam. This is Camila. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that a play that I wrote during the pandemic had its first public reading with a real audience. Blackout. 
Hey Sam, the best part of my week was that somebody totally unprompted uh, used my gender neutral pronouns and it felt really good. Hi Sam, this is Fletcher in Atlanta. The best part of my week was getting a surprise phone call from my childhood sweetheart. She was six and I was six. Fast forward 60 years and now she has a wife and now I have a husband. Happy Pride, everybody. Thanks again to those listeners you heard there. Rachel, Christine, Camila, Ben, and Fletcher. Listeners, don't forget, you can send the best part of your week to us at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself and send that voice memo to me via email, samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Andrea Gutierrez, Sylvie Douglas, and Liam McBain. And I got to stop right now and say a very special thank you and farewell for now to Sylvie. Sylvie's leaving this show to go work on the TED Radio Hour for a few months. Sylvie, it has been such a joy to watch you in action these last few months. You are so many things. A supportive team player, a master of archive tape, someone who seems to always be reading everything, all the think pieces. How do you do it? It has been a pleasure to work with you. And uh, don't go too far. we got to have you back soon. Our intern is Manuela Lopez Restrepo. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, I'm Sam Sanders. Be good to yourselves. We'll talk soon. <laughs>